0: So we're in Psalm 62 uh, today, and um, if if uh, if you could turn there in your uh, in your Bibles, uh, Psalm. So it's Psalm 62. So in the summer, we like to go through we like to go through all of the the Psalms in order. We started with Psalm one, and now. We are in Psalm uh, 62. So the Psalms are like these ancient poems written in the Hebrew language. The thing about the, the Hebrew language is that is that there's there's so there's the English alphabet and English poetry, but there's all there's in in Hebrew the alphabet is different and the poetry is it doesn't play by this by the same rules. And so if you if you look with me at the at the if you look with me at the passage you will find that it begins by saying uh, for god it says it says for it it says for god alone my soul oh god uh, i just in the summer it's really important for us to open up the book of Psalms because there's you know there's so much distra- there's so much noise it can be kind of overwhelming there's so many things that are happening everything is kind of competing for our attention all the time and Psalm 62 verse 1 says for God alone my soul waits in silence Doesn't that feel good? Doesn't Psalm 62 verse 1 tell us exactly what we need to do? For God alone, my soul waits in silence. The psalmist wants to hear God's voice. He wants to hear only God's voice. Not the words that he hears at, at work or from his family or from his neighbors. Or the, the recurring to-do list that's going on in his head. Let alone everything that's coming at him from social media and the radio. And, and The psalmist wants to slow down. And what we need to do this summer is to slow down. And to be silent. But not as, as wonderful as silence is. And as scarce as it is in our world today, silence is not the end goal. The reason why the psalmist says in verse 1 and repeats it again in verse 5 the reason why the psalmist wants to be silent is not because silence is what he wants, it's God that he wants. Verse 1 says, for God alone my soul waits in silence. That word alone in Hebrew, it's ak. And and it, it occurs a number of times throughout the psalm. And only the New American Standard Bible, if you have an NASB... It only uses the same word. You can only kind of catch it when you read the New American Standard. The ESV uses different words to translate "ack" because it's being used in different ways. But this is the clue to what this psalm is about. Verse 1, for God alone. Verse 2, he alone. But then in verse 4, when it talks about his enemies, they alone or they only. Verse 5, God alone. He alone or he only only and then in verse 9 those of low estate are but or are alone a breath and in fact in hebrew poetry we, we talked about last week how hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme and so the poets give us these other signals and this word ach uh, appears at the beginning of all of these verses so this would be a literal translation of the hebrew poem only for god my soul waits only he is my rock, only they plan, only for God, only he is my rock, only breath are those who are of low estate. Love ones, as great as silence is, it's not about the silence, it's about God. And when God spoke to Elijah on the mountain, when he felt like his world was falling apart, remember there was a great fire, there was a great earthquake, but it wasn't until the still small voice. It wasn't until there was silence that Elijah was actually to hear what God was trying to say to him. And so let's pray right now. Let's bow our heads as we dive into this beautiful psalm now. Heavenly Father, Lord, silence is a very precious commodity in our culture. It's very, very scarce. It's very, very rare. Lord, we know that we need it. We hear our neighbors and our coworkers, our unbelieving friends, often talk about wanting some peace and quiet. But Lord, we want it for a different reason. We want to be able to silence all of the other voices, all of the other noise, so that we can hear your voice, so that we can hear you speaking through your word. Lord, we want to trust in you and you alone. And so we pray for your help. We want to hear from you this morning. Open our ears and open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is a psalm about trusting in God alone. Remember that word alone or only, is repeated time and time again in this psalm. And we are called to trust in God. That's how we are saved, by trusting in God. But the, the walk of sanctification, the walk of living the Christian life, is learning, yes, we trust God, but also to learn that we are trusting in God alone we're always wanting to add these other things these other voices these other influences that we can trust in and uh, James Montgomery Boyce the great Presbyterian preacher summed it up like this he said as I see it our problem is not that we do not trust God at least in some sense we have to do that to be Christians to become a Christian you have to trust God in the in the matter of salvation at least It is rather that we do not trust God only. Meaning that we always want to add something else to trust as well. That's what Psalm 62 is about. Psalm 62 is laying it all on the line, putting all of the eggs into one basket. Putting all of our trust in God. And we're going to see as we make our way through this passage, we're going to, to see that, that, that four sort of themes emerge. And the first one is this, calming my soul. That if you want to be a person who trusts in God alone, you're going to have to calm your soul. You're going to have to be silent before him. You're going to have to stop and to be still and to be quiet and to listen. It starts with calming my soul Just a quick note about the uh, introductory notes in all capitals. This is part of the inspired text. The translators didn't add these words here at the beginning to the choir master. So the choir master was supposed to put this to music. It says, according to Jeduthin, a psalm of David. We recognize the name David, of course. But who's uh, Jeduthin or or Jeduthin? Well, in uh, uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, we understand that Jaduthin had a very important role. It says there were with them, there were He-Man, that's a great name, by the way. Uh, Any any people expecting children uh, in the next little while? He-Man and Jaduthin would be great names uh, to use for your children. I'd love to have a He-Man in a child dedication someday. Uh, Jaduthin and the rest of those chosen and expressly named to give thanks to the Lord. Jaduthin's job was to spend all day thanking God. To thank him for what? For his steadfast love endures forever. He, man, and Jeduthan had trumpets and cymbals for the music and instruments for sacred songs. Singing has been a part of what the people of God do for centuries, even back in the days of David. 1 Chronicles 25 verse 1, J- David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who prophesied with lyres and harps and cymbals. So at the temple, they had Jeduthun. Here at Hope Church, we have Jemusun. And uh, the other uh, team members, who are so faithful in proclaiming the truth of God, to build up the body of Christ, to prophesy through song, through instruments like lyres and harps and cymbals. So Jeduthun, it was he was his team of musicians and singers were supposed to run with this song and lead it for the people of God. And the first line says for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. The average human being reads or hears 30,000 words of in- worth of information every day. Every day we are given 30 a 30,000 page Essay would be Times New Roman, double space, 12-font, and, and that would be a 120-page essay. We, we process that just on an average day. That is how much just the average person processes on a regular basis. How many of those pages, how many of those words are the words of God? How much of the information that we're processing every day is actually coming from God? We get information, I mean, all of the time through social media influencers or from our friends or from family or from podcasts or uh, the news or, or, or Netflix or, or television. But are we listening to God? We live in such a distracted world. We, we have the disease of distraction in 2023. We're in some ways addicted to distraction. But are we listening to the voice of God? Are we standing silent in his presence? Are we opening his word? Are we getting away first thing in the morning or late at night or on our lunch break? Do we have a regular appointment in our schedule to hear the voice of God? Loved ones, we need to turn down the volume on what the world is saying. And we need to turn up the volume on the voice of God. Because for him alone, it says... Comes my salvation in verse one. Verse two, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. These are similar words to Psalm 61. Remember, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. God is the fortress. God is my salvation. These are all common themes. And because God is all of these things, because all of these things are true about God, that he is a fortress and that he is a rock and that he is our salvation, the psalmist says at the end of verse two, I shall not be greatly shaken. There is so much being shaken in our world around us and our culture is literally disintegrating before our eyes. But if you're founded on the rock, even though the world around us is shaking and falling apart, we will not be shaken. We are standing on solid ground. We are secure and we are strong. So trusting in God alone starts with calming my soul. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with just us running away. We don't get up early in the morning and and sp- spend all day, silent before God. It doesn't mean that we go off on our lunch break and then never come back. That as we are trusting in God alone, as we are waiting silently before him, we're not only going to calm our souls, we're also going to have the courage to confront our enemies. We're going to have courage to engage with the world around us and, and even engage with those who disagree with us or who are attacking us so it starts with calming my soul secondly confronting my enemies confronting my enemies verse uh, verse 3 says how long will all of you attack a man and batter him how long Again, this is poetry. He's not asking, like, <clears throat> exactly how long. He's not saying, like, when will this whole attacking thing be over? Because I, I have a lunch meeting at 1.30. If you're wondering when the service is over, will be over, probably around 1 o'clock, okay? But this is not a, how lo- it's not a question about duration. When the psalmist says how long, he's saying enough already. This has gone on for too long. That, that David here is being attacked, and he wants it to stop. And so he's confronting his enemies. Verse, ver, the end of verse 3 says that he's being attacked like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. Now, th- this is the, the one sort of in, in interpretive or translation challenge in Psalm 62. If you're an old King James reader... Uh, verse, verse 3 looks a lot different. Let me show you. So that's the on the left, that's the ESV, which I'm reading. But the King James says, how long will ye imagine mischief against a man? And it goes on to say, ye shall be slain, all of you, as a bowing wall shall ye be, as a tottering fence. So the ESV reads the Hebrew like, the enemies are calling David a wall that's about to fall down, or a fence that's tottering and about to be destroyed. The King James reads it like, no, no, no. The enemies are the ones who are the fence that is about to fall down. Uh, In the original, I'm no Hebrew expert, but in the original, it could kind of go either way. The question always in interpreting the Bible is context. What did, what did he just say at the end of verse 2? He said, I will not be greatly shaken. Why? Because he's on the rock. The enemies think that they can walk up to David and shake him. They think he's just a tottering fence. He's a wall that's already half fallen down. All we got to do is give him one good push and he's dead. And he says, it's over. But David is saying, you might look, I might look like a tottering fence. But I'm fixed on the rock. You can push me all you want. And yes, I am weak. I myself, By myself, I am just a weak fence, a wall that's already half fallen down. But I am weak, but my God is strong. Christians look weak. Because Christians are weak. And sometimes people in the world or people who are opposed to the things of God want to try to push Christians over. And it looks like it's easy. We've seen dictators, rulers, politicians, kings try to push Christians over and try to be done or push them away, but we don't go away. (laughs) That's the thing about us. We are weak. We are tottering fences. We are half broken down walls. But in our weakness, that manifests the strength. And the strength doesn't come from us. The strength is not the fence or the wall. The strength is the rock that we are fixed on. And that is why we will not be shaken, because we are fixed on the rock. Loved ones, the Lord Jesus looked weak. I mean, they managed to arrest him. They managed to put him on trial. They managed for charges to be against him. They managed to stir up the crowd to say that he should be crucified. They managed to nail him to two pieces of wood. They managed to have him bleed out. They managed to have him suffocate to death there on the cross. They managed to lay him in a tomb. He seemed like a tottering fence, like a half-broken wall that got pushed over by the influential powers of religion and politics. But loved ones, it's not just that Jesus was attached to the rock. Jesus was the rock. And you could not push him down. And you could not keep him down. And so loved ones, this is who our Savior is. David was pushed down, but he kept getting back up. And the son of David, Jesus Christ, was pushed down, but he got back up and was resurrected. So we can have courage in the face of our enemies, not just because David bounced back, but because Jesus Christ, the rock, is risen from the dead. Verse 4 says, they, they only plan, there, there's that word only again, ach, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. David, from a very young age, was put into a high position. Remember, he was just a kid when he fought against Goliath and won. He, he's, he's just a very he's a teenager, a very young man. And people are already writing songs about him and, and all the ten thousands of, of, of soldiers that he's defeated. David was in a very high position. He was on a first name basis with the king of Israel. Best friends with his son, dating his daughter, leading military campaign after military campaign. David was in a high position, but there were some people. Who wanted to thrust him down. One of them was actually Saul. Because even though Saul was king, David in some ways was put in a higher position. Remember that song they wrote about him? It was that David had killed his ten thousands and that Saul had only killed thousands. And so Saul was bent on thrusting David down from his high position. And then there was also Doeg, the Edomite. Don't name your your child Doeg, okay? There were the Ziphites and all Saul's advisors. So before David became king, even when he was in a high position, before he became king, people were trying to thrust him down. And then when David became king, people in a high position, and he was in the highest position in the land, people still wanted to thrust him down. The Philistines and all of the other armies that attacked him, his own son Absalom, Ahithophel, who was the grandfather of Bathsheba, Shimei, who threw rocks at David when, when David was fleeing from Jerusalem. Sheba, who led another, a rebellion against David. Trying to th- they're all trying to thrust him down from his high position. And how did they do it? What did Ahithophel and Absalom and Saul and Doeg, what did they all have in common? They all had in common what the psalm describes here in verse 4. They take pleasure in falsehood. They loved to lie, and they used lies and deception to try to take David and to thrust him down from his position. It says that they bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. They said one thing to David's face, but they said a very different thing when David wasn't in the room. They took pleasure in lies. Loved ones, we're living in a world more and more where where our world just takes pleasure in lies. Where where the truth is staring us straight in the face and our world is just simply saying, no, I I prefer to think about it this way, which is the wrong way, which is a lie. And, And the way that David was treated, people trying to thrust him down, people lying about him, It's the same way, again, same way Jesus was treated. Jesus was, can we all agree Jesus was in a high position? Like being the son of God doesn't get much higher than that, right? And even when he humbled himself and took on flesh and became a servant, people still couldn't help but put him in a high position. I mean, his teaching was off the hook. He's performing these amazing miracles. He's giving dignity to women and to the poor. Everyone loves him. He he arrives in Jerusalem riding on a donkey. People are waving palm branches saying, this is the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's crown this guy. He's in a high position and people wanted to thrust him down. And they used lies and falsehood to do it, didn't they? always trying to trap him in what he was saying, stirring up the crowd, spreading rumors, trying to pit the Roman government against him or the Judean government against him, trying to pit the one religious group against the other in opposition towards Jesus. All lies. So loved one, it happened to David, it happened to Jesus. Loved ones, it can happen to the people of God today where people want to thrust us down Again, we are in a high position. We've been adopted into the family of God. John chapter 1 tells us those who believe in God have the right to be called children of God. That's a pretty high position. And sometimes Christians get put into high positions of companies or of, or of, of, uh, uh, of, of a school or, or of, of a company or in a community. And some people don't like that. And some people want to use lies to try to take people down. Some of you have experienced that in a very real way. Some of you look at the way that Christianity is represented in the broader culture or in our news. And, 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 and how, how we're, just, we're just lied about. You read the article, you're like, that's not what Christians believe. That's not what Christians think. That's not the right word to describe our position. And it can be frustrating. Frustrating. And, and sometimes it gets really close to home. Sometimes we've, we've actually lived out what's being described at the end of verse 4. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Where someone talks to you like this, and they're all friendly and nice, and then they tear you apart when you're not in the room. And, and I, I picture David writing this, and maybe you're thinking this. Yeah, that's right. That's true. They, they, they bless, and then they turn around and curse. And you know what I should do? I should turn around and curse them for cursing me, and it's starting to get riled up. And then there's a strategically placed Selah, which means to lift up, which means to pause, which means to just just hold on a second, okay? It is true. There may be people who are attacking you, and that's nothing new. The people of God have been under attack generation after generation. It's nothing new. So just take a Selah. Selah means to lift up. Just pause. Just rest. Just be quiet for a minute. And let's come back to where we started. Look at verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. It's almost word for word. Verse five and six, almost word for word, verse one and two. It's like like the chorus of the song. But there's some important tiny little changes. If you look back at verse one, it says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. He's describing what he's doing. I am, my soul is waiting for God in silence. He's describing. Then read verse five. He's not describing anymore. He's commanding. He's commanding his own soul. He's talking to himself. He's saying, Soul, you got to wait for God. You got to wait for God in silence. Those people are cursing you, and I know you want to curse back, but remember, remember, we got to wait for God on this. For God alone, verse 5, oh my soul, wait in silence. Don't feel like you need to curse back the people who are cursing you. Just wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. Do you see how he's, he's kind of talking to himself? There's a big difference between listening to ourselves, listening to whatever is running through our mind at the time, and then talking to ourselves, teaching ourselves, instructing ourselves about how we should respond in a particular situation. I love the way Martin Lord Jones describes this. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself, how to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself, and then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Having done that, end on this great note, Defy yourself. Defy other people. Defy the devil and the whole world. Sometimes we just need to talk to ourselves because we're always listening to ourselves. But we need to talk to ourselves to tell ourselves listen, we got to calm our souls. We got to be silent. We got to trust in God. We got to remember who God is. Verse six He is the rock, He's my salvation, He's my fortress. Verse 7, on God rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. So he begins by saying he's waiting for God. He wants to hear God's voice. Then he starts talking to his enemies and he's talking to himself. And now he wants to address the people of God. Now he's speaking to his community. And so here's the, uh, the third thing that happens for those who, who trust in God alone is he starts counseling his community. He starts offering some, some counsel, some advice. He's counseling his a community. And so if you're taking notes today, it's calming my soul, confronting my enemies, and then counseling my community. He, and he's, he's, he's going to tell them to really do three things. One is to trust God, which is the whole theme of the psalm. But then don't trust in some of these false things that we can often trust in. Don't trust in people and don't trust in money. He says in verse 8, trust in him at all times. He says, oh people. He's talking to his people. He's talking to the people of God. He has a testimony to share. He has some instruction to give. He says, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. I love that phrase, pour out your heart. You know, loved ones, we're so distracted so often, and even when we want to be quiet and we want to hear from God, there's all of these things still running around in our minds. I find journaling to be very helpful. When we're praying, it's almost like we're writing God a letter as we, as we pray, and sometimes we can be really formal in the way that we pray. You know, I've just got to start with adoration. I've got to spend some time talking about how great God is. I've got to confess my sin, and then I've got to do some thanksgiving. And then, then I've got to, uh, uh, you know, pray and ask him for things, supplication. But sometimes, we're, you know, we're trying to start with thankfulness. We're trying to start with worshiping God, and we're just so distracted. Well, maybe the thing you're distracted about should be the thing that you're praying for. maybe you're like you you know okay i got got i've got got to pray i got to set aside time but i'm looking up the, the i i got to, oh shoot I like, just realized like i haven't done the dishes yet and i got to take the got to take out the garbage and i haven't i haven't swept up in the, the hallway and, and maybe you just start maybe, so rather the temptation is oh i beat yourself up for being distracted or stop praying and get all those things done maybe that's how you pray lord i feel like i have a lot of things to do you can even be really specific. God, help me to find the time to get those three things. Whatever is on your heart. Lord, I don't know who's going to play goalie for the Leafs next year. <laughs> Matt Murray's injured. They, they're really low on cap space. He knows. <laughs> if that's what's on your heart, just start with what's on your heart. Pour out your heart. When, when Hannah was praying at the temple, remember they thought she was drunk? She just, she just wanted a child so badly. That was what was on her heart. Doesn't say that she was praying about anything else. She was just, that was what was on her. She, was, she said, I'm just pouring on my heart. What was in her heart? The desire for a child. Penina, who was relentlessly mistreating her. She was the, the, the one who had children. So she was pouring out whatever was on her heart. This is what this is essentially what prayer is. It's not for God's benefit. God doesn't need us to tell him what we're thinking we need to tell God what we're thinking so that we can grow in trusting in him. It comes from pouring out our heart. So we've got to trust in God. Secondly, don't trust in people. Don't trust in people. Verse 9, those of low estate are but or only. That's another ach. Those of low estate are only or but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath the people of low estate are a breath that's the word Abel uh, it refers to a vapor or something that's very very light Abel, the original Abel in the Bible our son's named after Abel but Abel was was gone right it, it, his name was kind of fitting he was he was there and then almost as soon as we realized there is an Abel Abel is gone because of Cain And able is the word that's repeatedly used in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's sometimes translated vanity. It's sometimes translated like a puff of smoke or a vapor. It's a breath. It says that people of low estate, ordinary people, are a breath. Then it says people of high estate, it says they are a delusion. Why are they a delusion? They're a delusion because if you keep reading the psalm, the people of high estate and low estate, they're both a breath. They're both able. But the people of high estate are a delusion. Here's why. Because people of high estate, the elites in our culture, are a delusion, are a lie, because they give the impression that they're always going to be there. They they give the impression that they're permanent and that they're invincible. But they're not. Leaders come and go. Movie stars come and go. Musicians come and go. Politicians come and go. Dictators come and go. They're they're just they're all a breath. But they're really good at this delusion and making us think that they're always going to be there. Then the psalm uses this picture of a scale. It says in the balances they go up. You've got a scale on the on the one side you have People who are nothing but a breath, a vapor. That's on the one side of the scale. And then on the other side of the scale, you have the infinite weight of the glory of God. And when you weigh them, the people who are the breath go up. Because the the weight of the glory of God, there's actual substance there. And whether you are trusting in elites or whether you are trusting in ordinary people like your, you know, your parents or your friends or your spouse or your pastor or your small group leader. You need to understand that that person is just a breath. And they're nothing compared to the weight of the glory of God. Now, I'm not saying That you need to, you know, when I say don't trust people, don't trust in people. I'm not saying cut off all human relationships and only read your Bible. That's not what I'm saying. That God uses people in our lives. But when, when we trust people, we don't trust in people. We only trust in God. The weight is only on the side of the scale that God is on. So yes, we can trust people. We can share prayer requests. We can ask them for advice and counsel. David is giving counsel right here. He's a person telling other people how they should live. That is not a bad thing, but it has to be in the right perspective. We got to put it in the scales. We trust in God. And as we trust in God, we can trust other people to help us. And when we find ourselves in the position of helping others, when our spouse needs our help, when our children need our help, when you're a small group leader and you're a member of your small group is looking to you for help, remember, it's nice to be needed, feels good, but we're not the Savior. In the scale, we're breath, we're just floating away. So our job as parents and as spouses and as friends and as small group leaders and ministry leaders, our job is always to point to the, to the side of the scale that God is on. And to tell them what David is telling us. Trust in him at all times. I won't always be here. My days are numbered. My life is a vapor. And yes, I'm going to try to give you advice and counsel. But my main advice, the foundation of my advice, is to trust in him at all times. Because I can't be there at all times. So trust in him. Don't trust in people. Then he says in verse 10, uh, put no trust in extortion. Extortion is wicked or unrighteous ways of controlling other people. Don't trust in your ability to try to manipulate people to do what you want. So don't, don't trust people and then also don't trust yourself to be able to control people in a manipulative and unrighteous way. And Then he says, And in the middle of verse 10, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. He counsels them to not trust in money in verse 10. Robbery, I mean, it's in it's in the Ten Commandments, you shall not steal. And so we, we shouldn't use, and listen, there's lots of sophisticated ways in our culture today to, to steal people. It's not just like at sword point. Okay, you don't have to mug someone to rob someone. You can rob your employer of your time by, by being dishonest about how you're using it. You can rob your customers by cutting corners. There's all, there's all kinds of ways that we can rob, that we can be dishonest with our resources for our financial advantage. So we are not to trust in money. And we're not supposed to use it or we're not supposed to acquire it in an unrighteous way. But then he talks about just the neutrality of money at the end of verse 10. If riches increase, not by robbery or stealing or dishonesty, just if You happen to sell a good product or you're really good at selling that product or you're really good at doing your job and you get a promotion and you get more money. If riches happen to increase, whether it's for bad reason or for a good reason, again, here's the the phrase, set not your heart on them. You see, God can put money in your hand and there's no problem with God putting money in your hand. But if you put your heart and put it on the money, if you set your heart on the money that God has put in your hand... That's when it becomes a problem. If riches increase, what should increase? If we set our heart on the money that God has put in our hand, then when riches increase, spending will increase. But we're not all spenders. For some of us, if riches increase, and if God puts money in our hand and we set our heart on the money, if riches increase, then saving will increase. We got spenders and we got savers. The, the, the spender thinks, I just want more stuff. Where the, sa- the, the saver is saying, I just want more security. The, the, the spender is saying, I just want pleasure. I just want to feel good. I want to go to fun places. I want to buy cool things. Where the saver is, is looking for money to protect them. But loved ones, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with spending. That's how an economy works. There's nothing inherently wrong with saving. So whether you're a spender or whether you're a saver, what what you need to be ultimately is a steward. That if you have money in your hand, understand that that's not your money. That God put it there and that it belongs to him. And do not set your heart on that money. Set your heart on the God who provided it for you. So if givings increase... It doesn't mean necessarily that spending should increase or that serving should increase. If givings increase, thankfulness should increase. If giving should increase, then generosity should increase. Because rather than worshiping the money that God has put in our hand, we should worship the God who put the money in our hand. So money is something that we can use to worship God. God and to show that we are trusting in him alone not trusting in the money that he has given to us or trusting in people Jesus said in Matthew six twenty four, you can't serve two masters you can't serve the money that God has put in your hand you have to serve the God who has given you those resources and you need to act as a steward not as a worshiper of money so that's how he counsels his community he says trust in God Don't trust in people, don't trust in money, trust in God. And then he he states here fourthly his confidence in his God. So a a person who is trusting in God alone will be calming his soul, will be confronting his enemies, will be counseling his or her community and and showing his, his or her confidence in our God. Verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. This, this is just, again, this is a Hebrew uh, literary device. This is poetry. This means I'm about to drop something that's really, really important. He's saying, if you haven't heard anything I've said so far, listen to this. This whole once, twice thing. We see it in the, the book of Proverbs. We see six things and then seven. This, this means listen to this. This is important. He says that power belongs to God. And that to you, O oh Lord, belong steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. He says two things belong to God. Power belongs to God and steadfast love belongs to God. He is the one who is in control. He has all the power. He is sovereign. And he is a God of steadfast love, covenant faithfulness. Loved ones, imagine if there was a God who was all-powerful, who had all-control, but was not loving, was not faithful, was not consistent, was not a God of steadfast love. He was all-powerful, but didn't have steadfast love. Imagine a God who had steadfast love, who was loyal and loving and affectionate and cared about you, but had no power. Imagine that. Imagine a God who, who had all the power in the world, but was not faithful. We would would worship him in fear. We would stand in awe of him. But we wouldn't trust him. Because we wouldn't know for sure if if, if he was going to follow through on what he said. He might have made a promise. But if we don't know if he's a God of steadfast love, yeah, we could worship him. But we couldn't trust him. We couldn't rely on his word. We We wouldn't know how he really feels about us. Or if we can trust him. If if he was only powerful but didn't have steadfast love, we couldn't trust him. Similarly, if he was a God of steadfast love, but had no power, if he cared about us and loved us and said all these wonderful things about how precious we are to him, again, but if he had no power, we would appreciate the sentiment. We would be flattered that he would think these things about us. But again, we couldn't trust him because he would have no power to follow through on the love that he said he has for us. So it didn't matter what he said because he doesn't have the power to fulfill it. But loved ones, this is the great truth of the gospel. And the great truth of the God of the Bible is the one who has all of the power is also the one who is filled with steadfast love. And he is the one who uses his power To fulfill the promises that he has made to his people. And his power and his steadfast love was made no clearer than when he sent his son Jesus Christ to suffer and die on the cross. That God used his power in that moment of weakness. He worked it all out in advance so that he could shower on us the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy that all of us need. You see, God is a God of power, and God is a God of steadfast love. And then he says in verse 12, For you will render to a man according to his work. David could trust that the people who were trying to tear him down like a tottering wall, like a broken fence, David knew that it wasn't his job to bring about justice. He knew that God was going to bring about the justice that David so desperately wanted. David knew that God was judge. David knew that God had all of the power. Uh, The Apostle Paul, when he was trying to speak truth into the hearts of Of a Jewish people who were judging non-Jewish people and were living a hypocritical life. And in Romans chapter two, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, all the things listed in Romans chapter one, and yet do them yourself? They're hypocrites. He says that you will escape the judgment of God. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And then he quotes Psalm 62 verse 12. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek, the glory of, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Paul's writing here in Romans 12, asking them, what are you trusting in? These, these, uh, these Jewish, some of them might have been believers, some of them might have been unbelievers, who were judging other Christians or judging other people. What were they trusting in? They were trusting in their family tree. They were trusting in the fact that their parents were Jewish and their grandparents were Jewish and their great-grandparents going all the way back to Abraham. And they thought, I'm going to be saved because of who my family is. They were trusting in their ethnicity, in their nationality, in their culture. They were trusting in that to be able to save them. Others of them were trusting in their adherence to the ceremonial law. God says he's going to judge everyone according to his works. If you want to trust in your works, if you want to trust in your lineage, that's not going to follow, that's not going to end well for you. The question is, the fundamental question is, is what we addressed right from the very beginning. Do you trust God? Are you trusting God for the forgiveness of your sins through the cross of Jesus Christ? Are you trusting him for salvation? And how do you know? How do you know if you truly are trusting God? The evidence of someone who is truly trusting God for salvation is that you are trusting God in every other area of your life. That you aren't relying on this or on that or listening to this voice or that voice. That in every situation and circumstance, you're trying to calm your soul and listen for the voice of God and take counsel from the word of God. Because the person who is trusting God alone for salvation, like in Romans 2, is trusting God alone for sanctification, for growing and walking in their relationship with God. We start start our relationship with God with faith, with trust, and we live our relationship with God with faith and with trust, relying on him. Let's let's bow our heads and, and pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you inspired, Lord, written out of one of your people being under attack, being lied about and cursed, Lord, one of your people going through such an agonizing, difficult, confusing time, and yet out of that anguish, we have this beautiful piece of poetry that not only describes the situation that this individual was going through, but that also describes what Christ went through and also describes what so many of us have gone through or are going through right now. And God, I pray that as David wanted to trust in you alone, I pray that we would have the same commitment to not trust in anything but in you. So Lord, we Pray that you would give us a big vision of who you are. Remind us that we and all people are like a breath, a vapor in the scale. And we are nothing compared to you and the weight of your glory. And that you, to you, belongs all power and all steadfast love. God, we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name.